Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the pod medic, and we're back, as always, with another episode for you. And I'm looking forward to uh, talking some more about um, the situation um, aftermath in Kentucky. We've got Dr. Joe Holly on again now that he's returned from that deployment. We'll get into that in just a second, but I have to always introduce my co-host, Sam Bradley, who is with us this week. And uh, Sam, it's good to have you back on the show. Well, thank you. And moving's not fun. Unless you have a good group of friends that are willing to help, which I fortunately have. So, But uh, it's amazing how disorganized things get. <laughs> you can't find anything and all the doors are backwards and uh, you walk the wrong way down the hall. It's just kind of crazy. Anyway, Joe, I, I didn't have a chance to even listen to your, your update. So I was thinking, why don't we kind of go back to basics, um, talk about what it is you do, what is your role with you, sir, how you get deployed, and, you know, and then just kind of walk us through your week. It was longer. How many days were you there? 13. Wow. Okay. Yeah, a lot more than I wanted to be. <laughs> <laughs> a lot more to, lot to talk about then. Yeah, so it, uh, it it that one it sort of drug out at the end there. We can talk about that in a minute. Okay. Uh, so hello everybody, good to be back. Um, and, and to your question, Sam, I actually have two different roles. Um, one is with the task force itself as one of the physicians for the team, uh, and in those search situations. I would deploy with the task force and my responsibilities would be taking care of the task force and the canines and any uh, folks that we came across in the field uh, during our search and rescue efforts. Um, I also serve on the incident support team, which is sort of a, I, I don't know, I guess a command and control uh, support unit that tends to go out first uh, to try to get things moving uh, and then um, has oversight and support functionality for the teams that are in the field. So it's sort of the next layer up in the federal USAR system. And then the, the next layer up is the, the FEMA USAR office in, uh, in Washington, D.C. So. Uh, it's kind of a middle management position, I guess. Okay, so what was your main role in Kentucky, or did it change? Uh, no, in Kentucky, I was uh, uh, actually served as uh, on the uh, incident support team. The the uh, entities that were deployed were in a variety of configurations, and the reason that I say that is that for some teams, they went out as um, water rescue teams, which are, are very small, you know, 10, 20 person teams that are uh, boat heavy and water rescue heavy and tend to be small footprints, uh, highly mobile, and do not usually have a physician with them. They do have a medic, uh, one of our medical specialists with them. Um, and then the uh, some teams go out in our more traditional configurations, which uh, may, uh, which will include, uh, you know, a physician with the team 
uh, and more people, more equipment, bigger footprint, et cetera. But uh, we, we often deploy a variety of assets into a, uh, the field like that because we may need the what, what both, of, both of those configurations bring to the table. Oh, my. Um, so I know there's a lot more to use our people just think about digging through rubble, but obviously there's many different components to the team depending on the situation they're in. So that's that's a good thing to know. Um, what is your responsibility with and for those teams that the IST is responsible for? So the the uh, the IST would be uh, my role, in particularly would be putting together the uh, medical intelligence for the area. That is doing an assessment of the uh, how impacted local medical resources are, um, including veterinary resources, pharmacy resources. Um, uh, hygiene-related um, resources such as, you know, the ability to get showers and have clean water and all those sort of things that you need to recuperate and, and uh, decontaminate and all that sort of stuff. Uh, there's a, a hazardous material role uh, in that uh, the IST medical folks are closely uh, affiliated. Matter of fact, there's there's three of us. We're the we're the power trio, I guess, uh, and that is a safety officer and a has uh, hazardous materials officer. Uh, so we we sort of function as a single entity to uh, uh, you know assess risk. What do we need to do from a decon standpoint? Do we need to have uh, be concerned about certain antidotes because we're working around XYZ chemical. Um, you know, so we're doing assessments like that to try to understand what the hazards are and how to mitigate them. Um, we're also collecting information from, <clears throat> excuse me, our teams regarding um, uh, illnesses and injuries and things that the teams may be experiencing. Um, we, we do that for several reasons. Uh, we do that so that we can attempt to uh, try to identify um, things that we need to do something about. And, and by that, I mean, for example, Team A worked in a certain area <clears throat> yesterday, and today they all have some sort of weird GI thing going on, uh, but Team B who work in a different area is not having any GI things going on. So, you know, we need to know that because it's like, did team A get into something that we need to be aware of? And do we need to go investigate that? Or is there, is this an infectious thing? You know, what's going on there that makes a difference? Obviously, the ability to provide medical care for uh, our teams and the others that we work with uh, in that in that uh, environment is challenging and uh, resources are hard to come by. And so we, we work very hard to try to avoid uh, illness in the field. Uh, and if we do have a, an illness or injury, uh, we spend a lot of time working. How do we get our people out of that situation and get them where they need to go to get the care that they need? Um, the same applies to the dogs. Obviously, our canines are 
an extremely valuable asset. Uh, and in the situations that they often get placed in, uh, get exposed to a lot of different um, things, both environmentally infectious and uh, consumables. Uh, and uh, can easily get hurt because, you know, they're climbing around in pretty sketchy areas a lot of times. So, uh, you know, that that's sort of our, the primary function there um, is to simply oversee that. And we do that for multiple different teams that are in the field. Uh, we'll move around and, and visit those teams and often engage with them uh, while they're doing some of that work. Um, just depending on what the the resource demands are. Well, do you have a vet that travels with you, or are you just all trained to know basic dog care? Uh, we all have some uh, basic veterinary training um, for the straightforward stuff. We do have a couple of vets that are in the system. Uh, some of them are actually canine handlers. Uh, that uh, are in the field, um, but we've also got a couple that we have uh, worked with for years that are available to us either uh, by phone if need be, um, and, and that that's a pretty common situation where we would just call them and uh, interact with them. Um, but for larger deployments, particularly one that involves lots of dogs will often activate those uh, vets and have them in the field with us. Jamie, you have a question? Yeah, I do, Joe. Um, you know, you were talking about monitoring the teams and things like that to, to see how they're doing and the dogs as well. Um, how, how difficult is it for you and the other members of the IST to measure what might be regular wear and tear for a deployment on a team and when they get to that point where they need to be pulled off the, the line and given some rest time? Uh, that's a great question, Jamie. You know, some of that is uh, experience based. A lot of that is keeping track of um, the, the illnesses and injuries uh, that we're seeing, you know, as people get exhausted and, uh, overly fatigued and sort of worn down from several days of this intensely rigorous and difficult work with very little sleep, um, you begin to see uh, uh, minor injuries begin to go up. Uh, the request for, uh, you know, Motrin and uh, Tylenol and something to help me sleep and my head stopped up and I'm coughing and all of those things begin to climb pretty uh, precipitously as well. Uh, as everybody just gets worn down. So we sort of monitor those kind of signals uh, that the team is sending out to, to give us uh, insight as to uh, their, their state of readiness and their state of exhaustion. So what is the ability to get uh, a replacement team? Do you have that as part of the process? Once yeah, we do. Um, go down? Sure. So, you know, there, there, there are a fair number of teams in the system and uh, many of the task forces have the ability to field more than one team uh, if need be. Uh, oftentimes, if we have a, a small uh, number of folks, so for example, um, uh, a COVID outbreak, uh, you know, we could pull four or five people out 
and uh, isolate them and pull in replacements from that team uh, without too much trouble. Now, the, you know, the, the further we're out in the field and the, the more challenging the environment, obviously, the harder that becomes. Um, but at the same time, it's, it, it, it is possible to do that uh, as we need to. And we're, we're always monitoring for what the, the local, regional, and state um, is asking of us and what resources those entities have in the field as well, because we often oversee them also uh, and support them also. Uh, and so, you know, in some cases it may be, can we uh, pull in a, uh, a state USAR team uh, to cover this area because the federal team uh, is, you know, needs a down day to get some rest and, you know, rehab their gear and all that sort of stuff. So we have the ability to um, interchange those as we need to uh, and to swap out uh, people and entire teams if we need to do that as well. Well, what about unforeseen dangers? Of course, whenever we talk about floods, I think about man-eating pipes and uh, things like snakes. What about that? <laughs> yeah, we had uh, we had plenty of those um, here, uh, along with uh, uh, lots of um, uh, wildlife as well as domestic animal uh, deaths uh, that were washed away in the flood. Uh, so you know we come across that kind of stuff often. Uh, in in Kentucky, we were in the mountains, so you have to worry about all the creatures that live in the mountains and uh, come looking for the food that's <laughs> been washed into their laps in many cases. So, uh, you know, those, those are constant things to be concerned about. Um, it, it's part of what the teams just do on a regular basis. It's part of, the, uh, part of the function of the team is to be paying attention to that kind of stuff, watching out what's going on, et cetera, uh, and prepared to respond if need be. Wow. Um... I had a related question, but I forgot what it was. Um, what specifically did they do in Kentucky? What were they were they faced with mostly rescues, especially in the beginning? Yeah, I think that you know the initial couple of days there were um, trying to get some damage assessment um, done, get a sense of what areas were uh, impacted and to what degree, uh, because these rivers tend to, you know, wind down very narrow gorges and canyons in the, in the mountains, um, you know, the roads would often be impacted, the bridge would be out, et cetera. And so uh, challenges in trying to get into those areas, obviously having to wait for the flooding to go down enough to be able to get in there and then uh, trying to get an accurate uh, sense of the number of people that were thought to be missing um, and trying to restore contact uh, in many cases with uh, folks that, uh, that live along those rivers and are pretty deep back in the woods and there's sort of run one road in there and one road out. Uh, and, you know, those roads are often pretty badly impacted. Uh, and so it's, it can be a challenge to, to get back in there to get access to people. So 
uh, a lot of that early on as um, uh, I think the rescue stuff seemed to settle out fairly quickly. Um, and probably by four days in or so, we were shifting more to uh, a recovery function, um, simply trying to identify um, uh, and locate uh, folks that were listed as missing. So we spent several days doing that as well. Um, and then toward the end of that, we're beginning to shift over to uh, more more things along the lines of uh, getting roads opened again, um, you know, power restoration, um, assessments of bridges for usability, safety, et cetera. Uh, obviously, an awful lot of structures that had water in them or had completely washed away and were now impacted against a bridge downstream someplace and blocking the flow of water. Uh, all of that stuff has to be removed and the bridge inspected and the roadway cleared and all that sort of stuff. So, uh, you know, that that's kind of where we began to disengage is once we reached that that point, there's not an awful lot left there for us to do. Well, A, uh, people don't realize all the various things that a USAR does besides just digging people out of the rubble. And B, you don't, I mean, the environment can change radically from one incident to the next. We don't think about that either. Jamie? Yeah, Joe, you, you mentioned that you were there for 13 days. It seems like a, a rather long deployment. Um, was, was there anything in particular that impacted the deployment running into the second week like that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we we were quite busy for the first uh, five to seven days, I guess, uh, as you would expect for an event like this. And as as things began to wind down uh, and we look to um, transition sort of back to, you know, hand, handing things back over to the locals, um, there was a lot of concern for uh, incoming weather, uh, and they were expecting some fairly torrential rains back in that area uh, a, the following day and then for a couple of days after that. And so we, um, we sort of pulled back into a staging function where we were just hanging out, uh, rehabbing our gear and making sure we were ready to respond if need be and uh, then began to incorporate uh, some of our downtime and fill that with training and that kind of stuff while we were there. But Kentucky had asked us to uh, remain in the area and available for response uh, for a couple, three more days until they were uh, comfortable enough that the weather uh, was not going to result in severe flooding again. Uh, and as soon as they were sure that they were okay from that regard, they, uh, they cut us loose. Jamie? Yeah, and a follow-up question to that is, you know, we've seen more and more of these, you know, major events, the, the once-in-a-lifetime storm events, the once-in-a-lifetime disaster events for a given area, and your teams get deployed to them, whether it's after a hurricane on the Gulf Coast or these, this type of flooding that hits a place like rural Kentucky, um, what's the aftermath of this like 
on the team? How does it affect retention? How does it affect um, the long-term viability of the members keep continuing to, to do their work with the team in the future events? Uh, you know, I think it, it, it's sort of a double-edged sword in many cases. Uh, I think that for many teams, um, there is some frustration with quote unquote sitting around. Um, and I, I, I certainly can understand that. Uh, I think that we utilize that time pretty effectively, but at the same time, I think that there is, um, uh, we, we have to be careful that we don't let that happen any more often than is necessary um, because it does lead to sort of frustration and, you know, why are we just sitting here? Why aren't we out working? Um, and, you know, so that in some ways that can that can frustrate a team, particularly folks that do not have uh, an awful lot of time on the team yet to sort of um, appreciate the big picture uh, in that you know, sometimes you just got to be ready and that's, that's all there is to do right now until we're sure which way this thing is going. So I think a lot of that comes down to, um, people not having, uh, good information or an understanding of why we're doing or being asked to do what we're doing. Uh, and trying to make sure that, that, that people sort of get the big picture, we're we're the only there as you know part of the response, and we're there in support of the locals and the region and the state. And um, you know we often are not as knowledgeable about what those capabilities are and the depth of those capabilities and how long those capabilities can remain in place. Uh, and we often serve as backup for a lot of that. And you know sometimes it just takes a day or two to kind of figure out that. The, the local teams have all they need and are good to go. And sometimes you find out that they, they, they're still overwhelmed and we just didn't know it yet. And uh, we're going to need to go back to work and do some other stuff. So the question is, how do you, how do those relationships usually work? And what if you have locals that want to come in and be helpful, but actually aren't? <laughs> well, there's a couple different questions in there. So, you know, usually our role is to um, get with the uh, AHJ, the agency having jurisdiction, um, whether that's, you know, the state or local or, you know, all of, all of the above, uh, and support them in their organization and the organi organizing of the response, um, uh, you know, we see one of our roles is that of mentoring um, for a lot of those uh, local, regional, or state entities that are not very experienced in disaster response and are feeling overwhelmed and are not really sure which way to go with things. Uh, you know, for for an individual, a major disaster like that may be a once in a career kind of situation. Uh, and you know, for for a USAR team, we've been doing that for thirty years. You know, it's that's all we do is go to those things. So, you know, we we spend a lot of time mentoring and supporting and trying to help out the locals get organized and 
um, you know, support their infrastructure and and make plans and allocate resources and do all the stuff that needs to be done in those situations. Um, the, I'm sorry, you have a question, Sam? No. Oh, sorry. Uh, the other part of your question uh, related to folks showing up to help um, can uh, can work in several different ways. Um, pretty much everybody that shows up uh, is doing so for the right reasons. I know we've talked about this before on the on the podcast of the. The folks that show up with sort of no infrastructure at all and no real understanding of what's going on and no no plan for supporting themselves, et cetera, tend to be um, problematic because we end up having to take care of them and they're uh, they become much more a liability than they do a resource. Um, which um, leads to a lot of struggles in the field. Uh, so one thing that tends to happen in situations like uh, Kentucky is a lot of uh, folks from the area will show up with their dog um, to, you know, assist in search. And that that becomes somewhat problematic because uh, everybody tends to think their dog is very good uh, at what it does and some of them are and some of them are not uh, and it, it it is very challenging in the field to try to ascertain the training and abilities of uh, quote unquote search dog uh, and so you have to rely on what the handler tells you, and um, the handler may or may not be very uh, knowledgeable about uh, certifications and what's required and just knows that their dog is great in the woods at chasing down deer. And so, you know, he should be able to go chase down people. Uh, yet those animals are uh, not at all prepared for that environment. And when they engage in that environment and you are attempting to rely on that dog, that canine, to provide information that you're going to use for decision making, it becomes um, very challenging. So uh, a great example is, uh, you know, somebody shows up with their dog that, um, uh, you know, is is great at finding uh, live people and dead people. They can find anything. Um, uh, to me, that's a major red flag right there because, you know, in our situation, I don't want the dog alerting on a dead person. I want him alerting on a live person because I, I, I need to find the live people first, right? The dead people can wait. Uh, but if that dog alerts and we then commit our personnel to uh, a rescue attempt or a recovery attempt that puts them in harm's way. Um, and if, you know, we're doing that based on the fact that we've been given information that this dog knows what it's doing. Uh, and when we find out later that the dog has no clue what it's doing, 
Um, we have put our crews in harm's way for no reason, uh, based on bad information. Uh, and, uh, you know, I can certainly think of one example where we put crews in the water to uh, perform a pretty, um, a, a pretty dangerous search uh, based on a, a dog that had no business in the field. Uh, as a matter of fact, we ended up having to rescue the dog because he got stuck and couldn't get himself out and didn't know what he was doing in that environment, et cetera. So it was uh, a, an eye-opening experience of uh, appreciating what the resource you have is and how much those decisions uh, rely on good information and and everybody being honest and forthright and speaking the same language about what those capabilities and certifications and uh, abilities uh, of that resource can do. So USAR didn't send any dog teams or were they, were they just not where you were? No, uh, USAR did have dog teams there. Um, but, you know, at the same time, we, we're often um, paired up with local resources and, um, you know, it's not uncommon for us to have local law enforcement with us who may have their law enforcement canines with us uh, and then uh, other local area folks show up with their uh, animal as well and, you know, they present themselves to the uh, agency having jurisdiction and say, I'm here with my incredibly great, you know, search dog and how can I help you? And, you know, they get, they get vetted sometimes really well and sometimes not so well. And then they get assigned to go out and do something if they appear to know what they're doing. Uh, and it's not until you get them out in the field that you figure out that, uh, they don't really know what they're doing and they should never have been allowed out in the field to do anything or they simply show up out of sight on their own. They just drive themselves in there. Or they live close by or whatever and jump in and want to help. They have dogs that drive. I'm impressed. No, nah, the dog doesn't. But you know, <laughs> well, well-meaning people, but I think it's it's just simply a a complete lack of understanding of that environment, that situation, and the impact that a bad decision or a decision based on misleading or false or incorrect information can have. It can hurt people. It can kill people. And, and, and it's people get upset when you say, you know, I'm sorry, your dog really doesn't have what it takes. Um, they don't want to hear that. But in reality, it's we're trying to save your dog from getting killed and we're trying to save our people from getting killed based on the fact that your dog is not <laughs> able to do this work uh, and therefore, you know, cannot give us reliable information that we need to, uh, to, to mitigate the risk or at least make certain that the risk benefit is where it needs to be. Well, not only is there a lot to know, but you know, besides the capabilities of the dog. And like you say, there's no dogs that are super dogs that can do everything. They're usually trained in one specific or two specific areas. And you, you put a lot goes, like, there's a lot at risk. 
and that's that's pretty scary. Um, thoughts, Jamie? I, you know, we've talked a lot about the, you know the the negative aspects of self deploying, and I think this is just another example of of how that can go wrong in a lot of different ways, and often. That's the the pro, the biggest problem is that it ties up other resources that could be used for for different things um, uh, improperly. So it, it's I think this is a great example of that. So last question, Joe, what do you do when the team all comes home? Do you is there reasons for debriefings or you know they're seeing a lot of dead people and reactions to I've lost my family and. You know, is that kind of a, a regular, regularly expected thing, as well as maybe monitoring them for illness or whatever else? Yeah, one of the one of the roles of the IST is to put together the the sort of post deployment monitoring that uh, is part of all of that, uh, and that includes uh, what sort of monitoring we need to do uh, physically. Um, for their uh, their their physical health, uh, potentially from an exposure standpoint for their long-term physical health, um, and uh, any uh, critical incident stress debriefing that might need to be done related to the situations that we were dealing with there. We do that after every deployment. Um, we also try to lay out uh, any information that we have about uh, known exposures that we had, uh, and that includes our dogs as well, um, so that we have uh, some information that that can be uh, relayed on if someone comes back and, you know, develops some sort of uh, uh, physical problem, for example, that um, they're having a hard time sort of figuring out and we're able to say, well, we have some information that we got exposed to A, B, C, D, and E. Uh, and you know, that might be part of the, part of the source here of the problem. Uh, so that, you know, the medical system at home can help to, uh, ensure that they have all the information that they need, uh, in, in caring for those, um, both the, the folks that are deployed as well as uh, the canines. Well, you guys do amazing work, and I hope podcasts like this really helps people understand all the things that you do and, you know, the risks that you take, and it's pretty darn awesome. So, Jamie, I'm throwing it back to you. Yeah, and, it, you know, this is a great episode that points out the, the reason why um, Joe's team at Paragon is such a valuable resource for education and training because they have all of this, you know, like you said, Joe, 30 years of experience in, in urban search and rescue of various types and can pull that information together and the, the requisite people that have a given type of experience to customize things for exactly what an, an area needs to learn, whether they're prone to flooding or prone to tornado or prone to uh, hurricane impacts and rising water, um, all those things that, that come along with being disaster prepared. Um, and, you know, I think that's one of the things that this, this episode really points out is that that experience is just valuable. Well, no question about it. You know, I think for many cases, folks don't know what they don't know. 
because these tend to be infrequent uh, uh, to rare events uh, for any single individual's career. Uh, and we try to take our our careers, which have had multiple opportunities to engage in these situations and, and translate those into valuable educational uh, opportunities for uh, the folks that come to class. So where can folks find out more about um, what they can do and, and how to reach out to Paragon? Well, we're, we'd love to hear from folks so we can customize their experience. Uh, they can find us at paragonmedicalgroup.com or on Facebook under Paragon Medical Group, or they can always reach us through the Disaster Podcast. Excellent. Um, Sam, where can folks find you? First, I have to find the mute button. Uh, They can find me on social media under Sam Bradley or Sam Bradley 11. Uh, They can find our IDMC nonprofit on idmc.us. And certainly in the Disaster Podcast Facebook group and the Disaster Podcast website. How about you, Jamie? People can find me under the handle Podmedic in most social media locations. So please uh, look me up there. And, of course, at the Disaster Podcast Facebook group where we have a lot of our experts from past episodes available to answer questions. If you've listened to an episode, um, you can usually post a question in there and we can get that person that was on the show, come back and answer your question directly in most cases. So um, definitely take advantage of that resource. And of course, always go over to disasterpodcast.com where you can subscribe to the show on your favorite mobile device and app. And um, just a great way to keep up with every episode so you don't miss anything. Um, Sam, good episode. I'm glad we were able to get this kind of after action review with Joe on what he did on this deployment. Um, It was, you know, a a lot of lessons learned, it sounded like. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because usually this time of year we're dealing with hurricanes and such, and this seems very different, especially being up in the hills of Kentucky. So I guess that begs the issue that, you know, you never know what to expect. So be prepared for anything. So be prepared and stay safe.